Greetings, boys and babes. It's the Magic Hour, a place where we navigate through life's peaks and valleys with all the vulnerability and shamelessness we can muster. With the help of world-class guests from all walks of life, we uncover new truths and valuable tools for manifesting our highest potential. I'm your host, Mercedes Terrell, along with my partner in shine, Jade Bryce. Hey, you guys. I am so super excited for today's guest. I actually didn't even want to come up with questions for him. I just wanted to say, welcome to the show. You can just talk for the next hour or so. Yeah, me too. Uh, When I read his essays, I felt like he was... I text you, I think I said, is this guy in my brain? Yeah. Um, but the difference is that he's brave enough to actually write books about it. Maybe it's d- disciplined enough to write about it and publish stuff in a million different directions without giving a damn if people will be able to hold it all, fully embracing the gray. That's yes. Sometimes mm-hmm. driving after in myself. Yeah. And I feel a sense of relief when reading his work. It's interesting, you know, to read something looking for answers and to walk away from it. Remembering it's actually the questions that are more important. Mm -hmm. So let's get him on. Yes. Our guest today is a public speaker, teacher, thought leader, and author. He graduated from Yale in 1989 with a degree in mathematics and philosophy. He describes his late 20s through his mid-30s as a long period of intensifying crisis, which we couldn't relate to more. His work covers a wide range of topics, including the history and themes of human civilization, money, consciousness, cultural evolution, spirituality, and the ecology movement. The key themes he explores include anti-consumerism, interdependence, and how myth and narrative influence culture. He believes that global culture is immersed in a destructive story of separation, and one of the main goals of his work is to present an alternative story of interbeing. Much of his work draws on ideas from Eastern philosophy and the spiritual teachings of various indigenous peoples. An advocate of the gift economy, he makes much of his work available for free, helping us all get closer to our center, where the truth of we are one resides, and to be more comfortable living in the gray, our guest today is truly a light. Please help me welcome Charles Eisenstein to the show. Yeah, beautiful. All right, great. And I just encourage you, like, you know, you go off script if, if something else comes up from what I said. So we're so excited to have you here, and we have so much that we want to cover, cover with you. But your essay, Coronation, um, went pretty much immediately viral. And for our listeners who haven't read it, can you give us an overview of that and maybe why you think it went viral yeah, I mean, it was a long essay. Mm-hmm. I was surprised it went viral because usually 9,000 word essays don't go viral. You're yeah. supposed to write 800 words or less for vi- virality. Uh, but uh, it, uh, what people told me is that it gave voice to things that they had been thinking and not able to put into words. Um, gave voice mm-hmm. to some of not only the doubts around the official narrative, but also to the doubts about the doubts. Like, you know, I wasn't coming and saying, okay, everything you're being told is wrong and here's what's right. Mm-hmm. I was more saying, um, everything we're being told is suspect and I have no idea what's mm-hmm. right. And some of these alternative narratives, I don't know if they're right either. And the facts from which we build our narratives, even those are suspect. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I gave voice to this uh, bewilderment. Um, and also... Um, I wrote about some of the um, trends that that 
the COVID-19 crisis has kind of crystallized, but that have are, are of long standing. Mm-hmm. So for example, uh, social distancing is actually not new. Mm. Uh, we have been becoming more and more distant and less and less engaged in community and in physical mm-hmm. presence, embodied presence with each other for decades. Mm-hmm. Education, moving online, socializing, moving online, many kinds of human interaction, moving online. So this kind of crystallized a longstanding trend. Mm-hmm. And we could also talk about the trend toward the tracking and surveillance of all citizens at all times. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not new either. Uh, even things like the destruction of small business that is Mm-hmm. Uh, a consequence of lockdown. That's not new. Yeah. Uh, so, so, and I guess, um, what else did I talk about in there? I talked about the, the, the paradigm of control mm-hmm. uh, that is the default response of the authority structures of our society facing anything uh, troubling. The, the response is to find something that you can control. Mm-hmm. something that you can lock up, keep out, isolate, or kill. Mm-hmm. Whether it is a terrorist or a criminal or an invasive species or immigrants uh, or bad people or a virus or a bacteria, mm-hmm. um, something that to... And, and, and so that in a way, uh, the uh, COVID-19 has given us, in a way it's provided a, um, relief. It's almost a sense of relief that finally here's a crisis where there is a bad thing that we can control. Unlike the real pandemics of our time, which are, I would say, primarily autoimmunity. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, that is, uh, I was just talking with um, uh, Dr. Zach Bush the oh, other I day. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> yeah. And he was pointing out, he's, he's like, He's like, and he was talking about the decline of health, health and, and environmental stressors. And he was like, and we wonder why the prevalence of childhood chronic conditions has risen from 1.2% in 1980 mm-hmm. to 52% today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and these are autoimmune diseases, um, psychological yeah. disorders, uh, you know, depression and anxiety and allergies. And I think he, he talks about how that's mostly from glyphosate. And maybe yeah, vaccines I mean, too. Glyphosate pollution, toxic waste, like all kinds of things, electromagnetic pollution. Uh, but but and I thought, you know, I wish that we wondered about that. Hmm. He prefaced it by saying, and we wonder why, you know, as a figure of speech. And I, I was like, mm-hmm. I wish we wondered more about that, mm-hmm. yeah. and didn't just take it for granted. But anyway, I, I think that the and I, I wrote about this a bit in the essay that that we have this. Um, latent anxiety and perception that there's really something wrong in the world, but we can't really pin it on anything. We don't even mm-hmm. recognize, most people don't recognize that there is an, an uh, epidemic of autoimmunity and depression and obesity and uh, allergies and, um, you know, these chronic conditions. Um, so, so, we, we, so COVID comes along and it provides a vehicle to express our latent anxieties here's something to be afraid of and you can do something about it. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like the same catharsis that a horror movie provides some people. Mm-hmm. Like we have all these unconscious fears and it, prov- it offers something to, to dress those fears in. That's mm-hmm. like an avatar of our fears. 
and then it provides a satisfying resolution when it, the bad thing is is overcome. Can yeah. we? And and so COVID is kind of like that. Like it alleviates the feeling of powerlessness because here's something that we can do about. Uh, we we the government knows what to do about it. People know what to do about it. Like we have the illusion of control. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I said uh, there's all kinds of other things I said in that essay, and and I think that it was popular because. Um, it filled a bit of a vacuum um, of sense-making. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, how do you make sense of what's happening? And it also spoke to the bewilderment, as I said before. Yeah, I think that as you're talking about this, you're talking about the virility of your essay and the virility of a virus, which I mean, you know, where we get that term, but COVID specifically becoming such a viral sensation in its own right, you know, if we want to Mm -hmm. talk about how popular it is on media, um, (laughs) that both things, your essay and COVID have created this um, really eloquent, if you want to call it that when we're talking about COVID, I'm not sure, but really concise way for us as humans to be able to envision exactly what's happening in our world and inside us. Mm -hmm. Um, and you, I mean, of course, your words is the way that we're used to seeing it. And so we saw it in your essay of how you put together what's happening for us in a way that we could understand. And then, you know, from my own binary human mind, it's like, okay, then I can process that and hopefully resolve some parts or, you know, heal some parts or uh, my my mind goes to wanting to fix things. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to the virus, it's like, this is presenting us with an opportunity if we decide to look at it that way. And if we can look at it that way, um, it's a blessing in a strange ass backwards anyway. But um, I think just for me, it's like hearing what you just said there speaks so much to how humans want to perceive stuff. Like we want it to be uh, put in front of us in a way or be able to see it in a way that makes us go, aha, yeah, mm-hmm. because that's the that epiphany is like what brings us to the table to consume the media, to um, regurgitate the media, you know, to be the answer if we can, and all these different aspects. I think of what make us human. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the media right now is uh, keying into our desire mm-hmm. to be good and right. Mm. So it offers fuel for the outrage machine and the indignation machine uh, that says your side is right, their side is wrong. Aren't they awful? Um, and, and let's rally the troops. Mm-hmm. So, so it offers an identity for people living in a society that has stripped us of, of a lot of our identity and left us mm-hmm. uh, not knowing who we are. Uh, and that's because of a very deep condition of breakdown of community and uh, disconnection from nature and all of the other relationships that contributed to a uh, full human self. Yeah. So this is, uh, you know, a symptom of a very, very uh, deep condition. Yeah. So let, let's talk about what you call inner beingness, how um, we can maybe strive to regain a sense of inner beingness and really what that is. <clears throat> so um, it gets really like kind of philosophical, if mm-hmm. that's okay. We um, love that. <laughs> all right. <laughs> so the modern conception of a self 
is one of the underpinnings of our civilization. It's, it's part of our basic mythology. And by a mythology, I mean the stories that tell us who we are and why we're here and what the world is and what's real and what's possible and what's important. That's a mythology. And so ours says who we are is a separate individual in a, a world of other, um, among other uh, competing individuals and competing organisms. And that, that the world outside of ourselves is, is basically this fantastically complicated machine, but it is not a sentient, conscious, intelligent being. It is merely the habitation of sentient, conscious, intelligent beings, the pinnacle of which the only full beings are uh, ourselves. So animals have a bit less beingness and plants even less and rivers, rocks, mountains, the sun, the moon, the stars, the wind, the clouds, none at all. That's the, the mythology that, that most of us have grown up in if we've been educated in modern society. Uh, indigenous people, of course, didn't believe anything of the sort. So that, that's the story of separation, I, I call it. Mm-hmm. And it, is, uh, it stands in contrast to what I like to call the new and ancient story of interbeing, which is uh, a term coined, I believe, by Thich Nhat Hanh. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a very naturally occurring word. Um, I and probably many people started using it uh, uh, simply to, because what we're talking about, this, this successor to the separate self, it's, it goes beyond interdependency or interconnection. It's really interexistence. It's not that I depend on you and on our relationships for my survival, or I depend on the Amazon, or I depend on uh, the pollinators or the sun, <laughs> but it's that these beings are actually part of myself, mm. which means that if we cut down the Amazon or destroy the honeybees, or extinguish any species on earth, even if we could come up with a technological substitute for it and manage and control this planet with geoengineering, carbon sucking machines and you know, bleaching the sky white and seeding the oceans to draw down carbon and so on, something in us would still have died mm-hmm. without the Amazon. We, would have, we will have become less. And, and therefore our healing as as individuals and as a society and as a civilization, it, it depends on recovering these dwindling aspects of our being, these lost relationships to come back into relationship with, on, on every level, with um, exiled parts of ourselves, with marginalized elements of our society, of our, of, of, with other cultures, with the places around us, uh, to come back into community, to come back into the larger ec- ecological community, relations with nature, to, to know ourselves as relational beings. That is the, um, that's what healing is. And mm-hmm. that is what I would like our next mythology to be. Yeah. One thing I said in the coronation is that that's not a guarantee. It's not like this disease comes and delivers us from right. our purgatory mm-hmm. of separation. But I was like, at least it's showing us in stark detail where we've been going mm-hmm. to, the, to the totalitarian biosecurity dystopia 
mm-hmm. where you never appear, you never again go to a festival or a wedding or have a group hug or a yoga class or carnival or any of these age-old ways of human interaction without your personal protective bubble. Mm-hmm. You know, like that is, and this touches another uh, another dimension of the essay, which is, uh, and it, it's related to the story of separation because, which is the program of control and the equation of progress with control. Because if you are separate from the world outside of you, then the forces of nature and the workings of the world they have no intelligence, no consciousness, no purpose. Mm. They're just a bunch of random noise. And human destiny and human progress then becomes to impose our intelligence onto a world that has none and to overcome the competing others out in the world. That's what progress is. More and more control, domination of the world, of the other, civilizing the barbarians, uh, conquering the beasts, draining the wetlands. Uh, all, all of these are different versions of the program of control that equates to progress. So um, in that ideology, everything we're seeing happen as a response to COVID-19 totally makes sense. You don't have to posit a, a evil conspiracy seeking for their nefarious ends, uh, a totalitarian police state, it comes occurs naturally to somebody who's imbued with this ideology that of course mm-hmm. we're going to make things better. That's progress. We're going to track everybody at all times, contact tracing, and then we'll be able to control this infection. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is another thing, a part of that essay, as I said, it was really long. It can come as a, like a conspiracy of good intentions. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, it's, it's the, it's, I called it the civilizational tilt toward yeah. control. And in fact, to say, to, to, to jump off that mm-hmm. understanding, see, that's an uncomfortable understanding because at least a conspiracy theory tells you what to do about it. Mm-hmm. Like you, 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 you show them up, you kick them out, you, you win a war against these bad guys mm-hmm. and then the problem is solved. Right. But if the bad guys don't exist at all, or if they exist, but they are part of, uh, they are, they are um, part of a system and are generated and necessitated by a system, then ousting the bad guys doesn't do anything because Mm -hmm. the system will produce new bad guys. And so then we're left with, I don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. We don't know what to do. That is good. That's what we need. We need to know, we need to acknowledge that we don't know what to do, that we are not in control, and that the program of control has reached its glass ceiling. For the last 40 or 50 years, it has not made the world a better place. Mm-hmm. We have not engineered our social problems, crime, poverty, racism out of existence. We have not conquered disease. We have not conquered hunger. We have not won the war on cancer. Uh, in fact, quite the opposite, uh, not only are we ruining the biosphere, but we're not even healthier than mm-hmm. we were a generation ago, as you know, Zach Bush's statistic demonstrates. We're not healthier. We're not happier. Rates of depression, rates of suicide are going up. And it's not, it's not even that the 1% are doing fine. It's not working for the 1% either. Mm-hmm. So this is so we, we, this is part of why, why I called it the coronation. 
mm-hmm. uh, in that it maybe can show us like here's where we've been going, and um, here is here and showing us our helplessness and showing us maybe that our efforts to control even create more problems than they solve. Uh, and that also shows us our helplessness and then saying, is this the future that you really want? So do you think that some people are wanting that future because they're so scared of this virus? They're like, they're being pumped with fear to where they are going to want to sit in that outline circle at the park and wear a mask for the rest of their lives because that's how much fear they're having right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that was another piece of the essay actually that I forgot about, uh, is tracing this to the fear of death. Mm-hmm. and the elevation of risk minimization to holy status. Mm. If, like, and I, sa- I said, okay, why? Why are we so afraid of death? Yeah. That's also part of the ideology of the separate self. Death is the ultimate catastrophe, mm-hmm. the annihilation of your consciousness forever. And if you accept that, um, then mm-hmm. of course you're going to, fight a war on death and see death as the worst possible medical outcome and gear an entire system onto saving lives. But even that, actually, we're not actually saving lives. Um, If you are making policy and, and making that judgment based purely on epidemiological statistics, then you might say, yeah, lockdown, quarantine, distancing, masks, you know, they saved X number of lives. Um, Even that's quite debatable, actually. There are experts Mm -hmm. who say that this was the wrong response. Mm -hmm. But if you, but at least that's, there's a debate to be had there. Mm -hmm. But what do those statistics leave out? On the one hand, they leave out um, the quality of life that, that, that is invisible to longevity statistics. Mm -hmm. Like, and do you live your life that way? Do you like avoid every possible risk? Never get in a car, never get on an airplane, never do anything at all risky. I mean, most people understand that if you live to merely maximize your chances of surviving long, you're not really living, you're not engaging life. But even like purely, you know, in terms of deaths caused, probably there are going to be way many people dying of starvation than die of than would have died of COVID. Of course, yeah. There's, there's tens of millions right now of children who are wasting. Mm-hmm. You can look at the videos, they're heartrending. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think that with the spike, this recent spike, and everyone freak, like everyone's really freaking out now, do you think that that recent spike happened because we were doing the quarantine and the, um, the mass and the social distancing and that weakened the immune system? Or how, I, I, this is, I, I was just this morning looking at, um, basically I spent the morning getting very confused. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, you know, there are those out there. Um, I saw a graph of about the spike in cases in Florida mm-hmm. accompanied by a graph of the number of deaths. Mm-hmm. The, the cases are rising and rising rapidly <clears throat> and the number of deaths is plummeting. Mm. So why is that? Is it because <clears throat> the virus is um, becoming less virulent, less deadly? Mm-hmm. Uh, is it because it is now infecting younger people um, who have been, you know, released from lockdown and have infected each other, but they're 
they're not as susceptible to really getting sick? Is it because there's a lot more testing now? So a lot more cases have been reported, mm-hmm. but they're not actually more cases. It's just an artifact of more testing. Mm-hmm. Um, and more antibodies. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, but, but so I've been, re- I, I spent like time reading this Twitter thread, you know, and, and from that we had a lot of people who are in the medical system and they're like, yeah, any patient who comes in, we routinely test them now. And if they test positive for COVID, they become a COVID patient, even if they came in for cancer or mm-hmm. a heart attack or anything else. They mm-hmm. become a COVID patient and they get reported in the COVID statistics and we're testing everybody now. So of course there's, but we're not actually seeing more real COVID patients with classic COVID symptoms. Mm-hmm. So they, so these people think, you know, this entire spike is an illusion. But mm-hmm. then I also heard from another person who's like, I work in a hospital and my hospital is, you know, getting filled up quickly. Mm-hmm. And then other people are saying, no, my hospital's empty. Mm-hmm. So I have no idea what's going on. And, yeah. and it's so hard to tell in this time of narrative warfare where, where people construct narratives that fit their beliefs and, mm-hmm. s- and selectively uh, use certain facts and not others. And I mean, I, I have no idea what's going on. Yeah. There's so many uh, directions that I want to go with you right now, but uh the confusion that you're talking about and you're talking to holding, you know, as part of really the work you do and what you ask the world to do. Um, we're in this opportunity of being, you know, being asked to hold all the unknowns because there are so many. And uh, you brought up that everything when it comes to this anxiety, I don't know if I'm going to word this right, but or what I'm perceiving or what's coming up for me. And it is that when we get into the mode of anxiety, which is the mode of fear of unknowing what the future is going to hold for us. Right. If you take that all the way down to its root, it, it leads us down to death, this fear, this underlying fear of annihilation, like you're saying. And a part of that, that um, came up for me yesterday. My husband sometimes is my, you know, Oracle, as I think our spouses tend to become if we allow them to. Uh, And he said, I said something about being really in fear of not, of all this unknowing and having this underlying anxiety and the way that it's affecting my hormones and all these things that are happening for me. And um, he said something about fear being the thing that we're always trying to banish. You know, we're always trying to get rid of the fear, but the reality is that, you know, if we're on our hero's journey or if we consider ourselves brave, which is I think under all of it, what we want to be considered when it's in the face of fear. Um, Bravery only happens because there is fear and bravery is the thing that really, if we can hold on to being brave, then it's not about banishing fear anymore. It's about being brave and being able to, you know, be resilient and recover and show up again against your fear. He's a surfer. So he, you know, he has fear out in the water when there's big waves or, you know, some, there's all kinds of fears out, out in the middle of the ocean. But um, it, mostly for him, it's when he's underwater 
and locked down by a wave and he's trying to keep his heart rate low so he doesn't use up his oxygen before he can get back up to the surface. And that, that struggle that happens there is the brave part, right? The part where you're sitting there and you're, he said he used to try to figure out how to get fear out of his body. Like, I don't want to experience fear anymore. So I'm going to do all these techniques and tools to try to remove it from my body. But then later realize that it's not about removing the fear. It's about focusing on how to be consistently brave and show up again and again. And I think that's what we're talking about when we talk about the um, holding of the two concepts or the, the confusion that this is all bringing is like, how do we sit with this until it becomes clearer for mm-hmm. us? Yeah. So, so this is, I mean, one of the things that's going on definitely um, is a discomfort with uncertainty uh, and, and people therefore rushing to what's most familiar and most, most orthodox, which is what the doctor tells you mm-hmm. or what the authorities tell you that the doctor tells you. Uh, what the the collective of medicine tells you, because actually there's a lot of dissenting doctors right now who many of them are afraid to speak out, but they yeah. speak out privately, um, you know, to mm-hmm. me and other people who are in these conversations. Um, but but yeah, there's like certainty, comfort, security, um, predictability. You know, it's like a, a refuge. Mm-hmm. Um, as for fear, the way I see it, like fear is. Um, uh, an important natural and valid emotion that has its purpose. And and its purpose is to heighten our awareness in the presence of danger so that we um, are not, so we don't succumb to those dangers. It it, it provides like a a shell of safety around Mm -hmm. us, actually. Fear keeps us safe. Mm -hmm. The thing is, uh, as we grow and develop uh, as, as a human soul, at some point, we outgrow the shell that those particular fears provided for us. So like for a surfer, um, you know, maybe when he's a beginner, he doesn't want to really go challenge those gigantic waves mm-hmm. uh, or go to like a more dangerous beach or something like that. Uh, or if, say you're, you know, socially awkward, you know, speaking from experience here, like, you know, maybe you just don't want to go in any public situation where there's, you know, groups of people with drinks who might, you know, exclude you. So, so like you have a fear that, that protects you, that protects you from harm, Mm -hmm. but at some point you grow out of those fears and the things then at, at that moment, the fears that, um, have become limiting, you, you actually crave to face those fears. You actually seek out opportunities to face those fears. Uh, you, because we have, we are life and we have uh, an imperative within us to grow and to develop into our full potential, mm-hmm. into our full beingness. And ultimately that means confronting every fear that we have uh, as it becomes no longer uh, useful, no longer in service, because like you, your skill as a surfer grows, and and that fear now is holding you back. It was necessary; it kept you safe. Mm-hmm. You could never have survived if you hadn't listened to that fear. Fear is not a bad thing. So, but but it is a signal of a bigger world out there, and at some point, 
in the journey, uh, it comes time to probe that larger world. Mm -hmm. So I think on a societal level right now, um, we are uh, ready to face, or at least I would like to speak this into reality, that we are uh, ready to face our fears and to probe beyond them and to see who we can become when we're no longer scurrying around in denial of death with this mania for hygiene and safety, safety first, risk minimization, where it becomes confining. And we're, we're like, even if it raises the death rate by X percent, which is very debatable, but even mm -hmm. if it does, I'm willing to accept that in order to live a full life. Um, and I'm not just speaking for young, healthy people here. Like, I mean, I have parents who are, if they get COVID, they're going to die. Mm. Like, this is not like me being selfish. Um, it's, it's about what values do we hold sacred as a society? Right. Certainly life prolongation um, is a value. It's an important value. Like my mother has, has been quite ill for a couple of years and we thought she was going to die a couple of years ago. Um, but she uh, held on, outlived her terminal diagnosis, and she's had beautiful, precious moments during that time. Like we're all grateful that, that, that she has those extra two years. So this is a value. But if it came at the price of never seeing her grandchildren ever again, you know, or dying alone, uh, or like staying indoors all the time, would it be worth it? Right. And, you know, we don't have to theorize. We can ask her, you yeah. know, and I have. Um, and, and so this is, it's, there's no simple answer to this. It's not safety first or freedom first or um, uh, embodied gatherings first or like there's no trump card. There's no overriding value. Mm -hmm. but we have to understand like this is, there are competing values. There, there, there are shades of gray. It's, it's, it's complicated. Um, and, not, and not default into some um, simplifying uh, principle that determines what our choices should be. Yeah. And it's, it's like when we say, well, it's whatever is right for the individual, then we're becoming separate again because it's also what's, you know, you need to consider what's right for the whole. Um, and you mentioned this, this concept of the dying off of the Amazon and it being something that, you know, when we look at it, we go, well, that's probably not going to be good and beneficial in many ways. But then I also think about the fact that we, I don't want to call it a fact, the idea that we are, um, we are, these people who, who hold a, where do I want to go with this? If we are nature, right? Because we are human, we were born here on the planet. We are part of this and we are interbeing 
you know, we are interacting with all the things around us. We are born of it. I guess then that asks us to hold the fact that as we progress, quote unquote progress, as we change the world around us and holding the idea that we are nature at the same time, then when we are doing the destroying of the Amazon or we are doing the, uh, you know, affecting the climate in some way, uh, we are essentially doing as as nature. I mean, we are doing it as nature to some degree. So I feel like we become separate when we say, well, we need to stop what we're doing and reassess, uh, you know, the damage that it's doing to some degree, because it's, it's, a, it's, very, it, again, it's confusing because it's like, well, if we are nature, then what we're doing on this planet is just part of what our, our species does. Um, Mm-hmm. But we yeah. have a bit of consciousness, so it's also like, well, we do have a we have the decision to make because we're able to perceive having a decision, or uh, having a choice, rather. Yeah, that it, it gets confusing, doesn't yeah. it? It seems to be a paradox there. If like everything we do is natural, then then you know how can we talk about going back to nature or, or respecting right. nature um, with, without setting it up as an other, which is actually the root of the problem to begin right. with. Yeah, so for me, it's a question of um, that the problem is not that we're separate from nature. It's that we think we're separate from nature. If we understand that we are part of nature and, and we understand what nature actually is, mm-hmm. um, like that's another aspect of it. If you, the, the, the modern conception of nature is not as a, holy being, not as an intelligent, conscious world or universe, cosmos, but as basically a random melee of force and mass of generic particles bouncing around uh, uh, randomly, you Mm -hmm. know. Um, So as long as we have that understanding, our participation in nature is going to um, not be in service to the unfolding and development of life. Uh, I like to say that the story that we hold about the world is an invitation for the world to become that story. Same thing is with a person. Mm -hmm. The story that we hold about other people uh, invites them to be that. So Mm -hmm. you're a horrible person, you're greedy, everybody's out for themselves. Pretty soon you discover that that's true. Uh, and holding the people are generous. This actually gets at one of your other questions, you know. Um, then they become generous. You're mm-hmm. a walking invitation for that. And so the way that we uh, hold the world uh, invites the world to be that. Anyway, um, I, I think that our our civilization, our species as civilized humanity is simply not yet mature. Um, We're in still the child phase of -hmm. development where the relation to the mother is one of taking, uh, Mm -hmm. receiving, you could Mm -hmm. say. And the mother, Mother Earth, has very generously given to us Mm -hmm. everything that we've needed, not only to survive, but also to grow a civilization, to grow technology and science and all of the ways of creating Mm -hmm. 
that we have access to now. Mm-hmm. Then the child is supposed to go through um, adolescence and transition into adulthood, where your relationship to the beloved, let's call it, not the mother, mm-hmm. uh, there's a new kind of love relationship that enters the scene at this time where you no longer are simply in the role of taking, receiving, but you're also in the role of giving and of co-creating, participating in an entity bigger than yourself, mm-hmm. maybe called a partnership. That's where it heads. That's where the first bloom of romantic love carries mm-hmm. us into partnership. So our destiny as a civilization is to enter that kind of partnership or another word for it is participation coming from the same root partner participation um, uh, in the evolution and flourishing of life. That's why any species is created. It's because there's uh, an ecological need for it Mm. to, to maintain or develop the Mm. ecosystem as a whole. And we look at the history of life on earth for billions of years it has become more and more and more complex, you know, from the first multicellular organisms, you know, to flowering plants, uh, to like at every stage, the the complexity and biodiversity has grown mm-hmm. with maybe a few, you know, bottlenecks and hiccups. But, but overall, uh, life on earth is much more complex than it was um, 2 billion years ago, or even half a billion years ago. Mm-hmm. So our we as a species were created for that reason too. Mm-hmm. We're not Gaia's mistake. We are, we are here for the same reason that all life is here. We have a unique gift to offer life, to offer evolution. And as as we grow up, we yearn to enact that sacred duty, that gift that we have as individuals too. Like if, if, if more and more, if you do something with your life energy in the form of your career, for example, that is not in service to life, it's probably going to feel kind of empty. And so this is to actually rejoin nature really means to accept our purpose Mm -hmm. as being here to serve life. Mm -hmm. So I'm hearing it's, it's, sorry, Jade, it's just, just to repeat back what I'm hearing out of that and to confirm that I get it right because I want to really understand this. Um, It's a way to understand it is that we are coming into a, hopefully an age where we can create the synergy needed to be able to hold more. So almost creating the void for a new species to be born in the instance you're giving us or for more consciousness to be born from or to progress in some way. Yeah. uh, That's what wants to happen. I'm not going to say that it's an inevitability, Mm -hmm. but we have the opportunity now. It's a coming of age uh, ordeal actually that we're in. There's no guarantee that, that we make it through the ordeal, Mm -hmm. but knowing I mean, I think it's really helpful to know, to have another story of why we're here, to replace the story of ascent, Mm -hmm. the story Mm -hmm. that we are here to become the lords and possessors of nature. Right. 
Yeah, that doesn't that doesn't inspire uh, inspire us very much, does it? Mm-mm. You know, onward and upward, the conquest of this, mm-hmm. the conquest of that, the conquest yeah. of space, the conquest of the atom. I mean, come on, isn't there hasn't there been enough conquest? Mm. Yeah, I think you're right. I think we're changing the desire is changing for for many of us. I wanted to go back to inner beingness and how we're that is part of what we're waking up to with the whole Black Lives Matter movement, that racism is, you know, still very much present and that we are one and equal with all colors. A lot of people are waking up to that, that that hasn't been the case for a lot. Um, but we're still doing the bad guy and good guy narrative when we do things like cancel culture and, um, you know, doing the whole Karen um, name calling and things like that. So do you think that in the midst of this Black Lives Matter movement, which we're all for, that we're getting further from or closer to the unity and the thought of we are one? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think that the basic energy underneath Black Lives Matter is this like authentic uh, indignation um, and desire for, for, justice and desire for healing that basically says we cannot tolerate the way things are today. Mm -hmm. Uh, We cannot tolerate the condition of, of black and brown people uh, Mm -hmm. on this earth. Um, And then like so much else, this, this um, basic energy of justice gets hijacked and diverted onto um, formulas strategies, narratives that actually uh, undercut its effectiveness to generate change. So one of those is to uh, blame our current uh, structural racism on the individual racism of uh, white people. Uh, and, and, you know, and, and so you get all this calling out, you get the toppling of statues because those are white people who also mm-hmm. were complicit in slavery or complicit in racism. Um, and, you know, all the, you do all the diversity trainings and you interrogate your privilege and so forth. But does any of that actually change the structural conditions of racism? Mm-hmm. Actually, our current system could continue uh, perpetuating, it could, it could continue perpetuating racial inequality, even with no actual racists, even if nobody has racist attitudes, uh, the legacy of trauma going back many generations in, uh, among the descendants of slaves, the economic uh, institutionalized poverty, that's not going to go away just because you get on your knees and apologize to, to a black person. Um, so, so, even worse than that, the the whole um, trend toward um, you know apology and and tearing down statues and policing your language and so forth it makes it seem like you're doing something about it, but it actually diverts attention hmm. from these structural issues. If we really wanted to uh, improve the condition of the black and brown people of this world, by far the the, the biggest thing that we could do would be to cancel third world debt. Because mm. that is what keeps uh, c- countries all over the world, especially in Africa, South America, uh, the poorer parts of Asia, that's what keeps them constantly exporting their wealth uh, in order to maintain their 
um, debt payments to generate the foreign exchange that can be used to pay the interest on these tens of billions of dollars of debt uh, that then leave the country's population fighting for the scraps that are left over when everything's been exported to multinational corporations and institutional investors. And this gets like really like nerdy, you know, nuts and bolts economic stuff. Uh, and, and, and so this is what immiserates and impoverishes hundreds of millions of people on earth. And in it's, slaves. So we're back in the Virtually same. slaves. I mean, you know, you're, you're, you're exporting, you don't get to enjoy the fruits of your labors. It goes to the masters, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the masters of finance in this case. And, and all those people that are enslaved are living in a fight or flight state with no ability, no gap to be able to have perception yeah. of change. And, and, and even like, you know, many of the uh, consequences of this global debt system are very close to what the antebellum South um, did with their slaves, like breaking up families, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, like families are getting broke, communities, cultures are getting destroyed all over the place. So this is this issue is just not even on the like. Where are the people protesting in the streets saying this must stop? It's not even on the radar screen. Domestically, as far as this goes, probably the best thing. The, the biggest thing we could do would be to end the, um, you know, prison industrial system and um, implement some kind of universal basic income or, or debt cancellation domestically mm. on an individual level. And this gets, you know, into a lot of wonky stuff, but um, the, to, to change the system that ge- generate see, racism was actually invented to justify well, in part, invented to justify slavery. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the cause of slavery. Mm-hmm. It was the justification for slavery. Mm-hmm. Because in, um, after the Roman Empire collapsed, um, and by the way, this isn't the only narrative, but it's, it's, it's a, um, a fairly compelling one. After the Roman Empire collapsed, in Europe, slavery was, was forbidden. There was, there was serfs, um, uh, but then the serfs were freed too, and there was no slavery in Europe, and then, and it was considered morally repugnant. Um, and then the economic motivation for slavery arose again with the colonization of North America. So racism was used as a justification. Oh, it's okay because these aren't really people. Mm-hmm. These are less than human. Um, so so the, the, the economic... Like in, and you could even extend that to say that in, in, a, in a system of capitalism that requires deep inequality, racism is a key enabler of that system. It gives you a reason to accept unequal conditions. But the goal of anti-racism, uh, the goal of Black Lives Matter, ultimately, and this goes back to, to Martin Luther King um, and his his broader political consciousness. It is not to uh, merely give people of color uh, an equal slice of a pie whose ingredients require the impoverishment of people and places somewhere. Mm-hmm. It's not that black people now get to drive the world-destroying machine too. Mm-hmm. It's not that that the tables are turned and the uh, Submissive ones become dominant uh, and they get their turn. 
No. Like, how about a society where, where, where you don't have this kind of inequality and exploitation anymore that requires either racism or some other way to dehumanize people? Mm-hmm. So in, in, I'm sorry, I'm going on a long time here, but no, like, no. unless we, we get to these um, deeper, um, uh, these deeper things, yeah. <laughs> um, like, like dehumanization, mm-hmm. like the equation of justice with punishment, mm-hmm. like that's another thing. Like, do you want to uh, punish those who have done these bad things? Or do you actually want healing? Mm-hmm. You know, do you actually want racism to end? Right. Are you a humanitarian or are you dealing with just the racist binary concept? Mm-hmm. Right. And it's, and it, you, you say like, we seek our medicine according to the configuration of that wound. So it's like you, you see their anger and, and you, you empathize with them, but the, expression of inner being in this case, like you said before also is like, I would do as you do if I were you. So Mm -hmm. I feel like when I look at a black person, I would do as you were doing if I were you, you know, like I see that side. And when I look at white supremacy, I don't, I don't, I I don't relate on that side. And so it's hard. I feel like to have the, we are one mentality with the racist Mm -hmm. point of view, you know? Yeah. See, people tend to dehumanize, you know, white nationalists and think, well, you know, I can understand if I were born into a legacy of poverty and trauma in a ghetto Mm -hmm. uh, where my only role models were drug dealers or my only Mm -hmm. valid career path (laughs) was the illegal drug trade. Yeah. I could see myself becoming a criminal. Yeah. I can understand that, but I could never understand how I could become a white nationalist with that disgusting pot belly and the beer (laughs) resting on top of it because I'm so privileged and entitled. I would never do that. Mm. And and any time that- Same influence. Yeah. It's the same, like that's called dehumanization. Mm-hmm. It says, if I were you, I wouldn't be like that. I'm made of better stuff. Right. That is the basic psychic template of, of racism. Mm-hmm. And as long as we inhabit that, we will create more of the energy for racism on this earth. Mm-hmm. And we don't act, see the thing is, if that were true, if it were true that people become white nationalists because we're white supremacists because they're bad, that again gives us an easy solution, right. just like stamp out the virus. Yeah, cut them out. Mm-hmm. Still, cut them war out. mentality. Call them out. You know, uh, shut them up and so yeah. forth. And this isn't a and call for them to become right. more conscious or anything. It's just slice it, it off. It doesn't change the conditions that generate right. them. Mm-hmm. And it's actually, and I think it's it's actually repeating the conditions that generated them in the first place because the same hatred that they may you may be witnessing them put onto an, another race, for instance, is the same energy that you're coming from when you say, well, you don't deserve to be a part of this then, you know, cut you out or. Right. Or or just imagine like, you know, here you are. Uh, I feel a little hesitant to even say these things because, oh, Charles is making excuses for, you know, racism or something like that. Um, But this is actually about like, what do we actually have to do Mm -hmm. to to end racism? Um, Not what, satisfies our craving to punish those that we identify as the perpetrators. Right. But what actually changes these conditions? Imagine yourself as, as, you know, being called a white supremacist and Mm -hmm. being told how horrible a person you are. And like, you're like, well, actually, you know, I just helped my neighbor, you know, 
my elderly neighbor mow her lawn, you know, and my, I'm, I'm a nice person, you know, and I, and I'm, I'm a good person. I'm not a horrible person. Like the people who are calling you horrible things, they seem um, ridiculous. Right. And, and, and so there's, there's no possibility then of, of hearing their point of view. And this is one of the things I, I think is necessary for our society to heal its racism is for the stories to be heard. Yes. Like, you know, I, I sometimes seek, visit... Seek to understand. Before yeah. I, like, I, I visit right-wing websites sometimes, you know, and they have, like, the, the most... Um, uh, what, what, what I believe is the most, like, distorted views of uh, immigrants hmm. and why they're coming, you know, and they're, they have, like, this... They conjure these images of, of these gangs of criminals and so forth, and, like... I'm like, wow, if you ever could just have a conversation with, you know, that immigrant mm-hmm. mother risking her life to come here with her children for a totally unknown future mm-hmm. because she's escaping death squads in Guatemala or something like that. Like, if you actually could hear these stories, right. then you would not hold on to those beliefs. Mm-hmm. So I ask, how do we create conditions for all the stories to be heard? Because that is what rehumanizes each other. Mm-hmm. If, if racism is basically dehumanization, then the healing of racism has to come through rehumanization. This is the end of part one. Tune in next week for part two. We'll see you there. It's the magic hour, Mercedes and Jay.